Ooh, hello, Steph. Oh, hey, how's it going? Uh, hard to say. All right. Well, what's uh, what can I do for you? Oh, okay. Uh, uh, sort of a. Okay. Uh, so I'm in I'm in the FDR chat, uh, talking about uh how angry I am at my dad, right? And there's someone in there who who's you know basically a Buddhist who says uh that that you know the whole anger is inappropriate and, and he says that uh if if I uh approach my dad angry instead of calm, he'll feel twice the emotions I feel and and uh how bad that would be. And I I'm in this problem where I am passively, aggressively, uh, um, sort of defrauding and taking money from my dad by basically having him pay my rent and having him pay, you know, all my utilities. This is like a thousand dollars a month. Right. And it's kind of like, Oh yeah, I'm looking for work. Oh yeah. And, and I'm clearly not. And I, I'm not, uh, I, it's, it's a culture of like extreme suppression. Like I've never really told him how I felt and uh, the fear of doing that is, is really keeping me locked in uh, this this damn cycle of passive aggression where I'm not I'm not moving on at all and uh, and I he, he will be able to pay my rent in six days but I'm angry right now and there's no money in my bank account so I'm worried about, you know, the argument from effect here is if I go to him emotionally honest right now, I might get screwed and I'm not sure how to deal with this. You know, what, what should I do? <laughs> oh, those are, those are tough questions. Let's start with the, the Buddhist thing. Uh-huh. All right. So you obviously have, and I think we all do because it's in the culture, you have a susceptibility to the Buddhist argument. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. I've actually made a post about it, and it was mistaken. But, but Yeah, and so don't feel alone in that. I mean, we all get this, in my view, toxic propaganda about the unhealthiness of anger. So uh, since you have susceptibility, as I would say generally we all do, to this argument, let's, let's role play. So you be your inner Buddhist and uh-huh. uh, make the case to me that, um, uh, that anger is bad. Okay. Anger is immature. And that's not to insult you or humiliate you. It's just to give you a perspective that human beings aren't really, you know, we're not uh, developed correctly for society. Anger is this misperception that it solves problems. That by being angry... I think I'm trying to meditate right now. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel this, this, uh, I'm losing my role. I feel this need to sort of go off on, uh, how I, I'm stuck in my perspective. Um, that's fine. So, but don't worry, I'll take care of your perspective for the moment. Okay. Just okay. get yourself completely, like I'll argue your side and I think I'll do it well. I hope I'll yeah. do it well. Otherwise, I will have to change my podcast approach. But uh, 
just just really get behind the perspective that that anger is bad. Just really make the case, and then let me worry about the rebuttal. So you said it's uh, it's immature. We're not developed for society um, because we got these fight or flight mechanisms and anger back when we were hunting saber toothed tigers and being hunted by woolly mammoths or whatever, and vice versa, or whatever, right? And so we have these overdeveloped fight or flight mechanisms and uh, and angers, which are more appropriate to a hunter gatherer society rather than a civilized urban society. Blah blah blah. Is it that that the kind of argument? Right. It, it's that if your if your desired intent that you claim is to get along with people, then anger isn't helping you. It's right. counterproductive. Right. No, I mean that uh, if your desired intent is to get along with everyone, then I quite agree with you that anger is going to be uh, somewhat unhelpful in in that situation. So you said anger was immature. Is that because uh, anger is not understanding where the other person is coming from, but taking a hardened and oppositional position uh, to them? And and uh, if we empathized and understood where they were coming from, their hearts would melt, or at least it would be more likely that they would. We would achieve our objectives, get along with people better. So rather than, you know, peeing in the water we actually have to drink from, uh, we should approach people with calm and respect and empathy, and that will change, change the situation. Is that that the approach? Yes. So the Buddhist obviously has a negative judgment towards people who are angry, right? Mm Hmm. Well, let me think. Yes. I mean, they would say no, but clearly they're attempting to yeah. – it's a yeah. determinist argument, right? If you attempt to correct someone, you're saying that they're, op- they're operating suboptimally, right? Mm. I mean, if I attempt to stop a blind man from walking into traffic, it's because I don't think he should be – you know, walking into traffic is suboptimal to say the least. So the moment you correct someone, you're saying that there's a preferential state and it's a negative state that you're attempting to correct. Yes. Right? That's – I mean, that can't be – I mean, that can be fogged, but it can't be avoided or evaded fundamentally. Yeah, in the role, I was about to fog you, so... (laughs) No, I know, and then it would be like, no, it's not a negative judgment, it's just a harmonized, uh, slightly optimal tweak, but that's all nonsense. You're you're negatively judging anger. The moment you call it immature, the moment you call it maladaptive, the moment you call it destructive or toxic or negative, you're you're negatively judging anger, and I mean, that's, that's a fine perspective. I have no problem with that, but then we bring out the strafing B-52 gunners of UPP, right? Mm -hmm. Which is... If anger is wrong, then those who are more angry are more wrong, right? Yes. And if anger is wrong, then those who have the greatest power and abuse their victims through anger are all the more wrong, right? Mm -hmm. That stands to reason, right? Yeah. And if human beings are innately angry and angry is always immaturity, then how is it the case that some some human beings grow up to be far less angry and some human beings grow up to be far more angry? Surely the difference is how they are parented. I mean, the major the major difference, at least the one that would be most open to, to questions or criticisms, right? Right. So if angry people result from being angrily parented or, or abusively parented, and if a disparity of power, the anger in the service of a disparity of power, is all the more wrong, and surely those who initiate anger are more wrong than those who respond with anger, uh. right? Then surely it's okay to negatively judge uh, parents who are initiating uh, with an extreme 
disparity of power uh, and, and with the results of, of chronic anger, that surely is something that we can at least judge negatively, right? Those, those parents or caregivers right. or teachers right. or priests or whoever, right? Mm-hmm. Those in authority. Is that, that would be a, a fair response? Yeah. Yeah, they would be responsible for cultivating the anger in the first place. Right. It's like saying that um, violence is bad and self-defense is exactly the same as the initiation of force, <laughs> right? And therefore, it's like you come across a, an adult beating up a child and you say to the child that anger and violence is bad. But it's a sheer, rank, vile, disgusting, base cowardice to focus on a conflict between a child and a parent and to focus only on the actions of the child, right? Mm-hmm. That is colluding with the parent, that is ignoring the aggression of the parent, that is siding with the parent, and that is basically holding the kid down so the parent can hit him harder. Right. Does that make, uh, make any sense at all? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, These are just uh, the intellectuals who side with those in power to keep the slaves from getting angry. Because when the slaves get angry, the hierarchy of power tends to get questioned, if not overturned, right? Yeah, I mean, look at, look at Nepal. I mean, the whole Dalai Lama thing is this brutal, brutal monk class that lure, you know, reigns over this just incredibly enslaved populace that is entirely Buddhist. And they, they starve to death and they, it's awful. It's the whole justification. For- yeah, and of course, I mean, the, the master race definitely has a class of intellectuals who teach the slave race that anger is always bad, except you have to always ignore the master's anger. You only have to focus on defusing the slave's anger. That's how the hierarchy is perpetuated, which is why Buddhism and the, the hostility towards slave anger tends to come from intensely rigid and hierarchical, if not caste-based societies. It's a fundamental way that you keep the slaves down, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, if you really want to solve the problem of anger, then you, you have to solve the problem of bottling up, right? That the repression of emotion is bad. Right. You have to solve the problem of the initiation of anger, and you have to solve the problem of the disparity of power of ruler to ruled, right? Right. And when you put all of these things together, then a healthy self-awareness and expression, though not acting out an infliction of anger on the part of the victim, is essential to breaking the cycle of violence. But of course, these people aren't interested in breaking the cycle of violence. They're interested <laughs> in siding with the abusers and uh, crippling the emotional expression and therefore salvation of the slaves. Does that uh, make any sense? I mean, a lot of this stuff comes yeah. out of India. And India is the most rigidly restrictive and caste-based society that only now is beginning to uh, undo itself. So the very least that you would expect from people uh, from the cultures that talk about this kind of opposition to anger is that they should come from uh, free and open and liberal and democratic at least or uh, capitalistic uh, societies which value individualism and opposition to violence. Good heavens, I mean, in India, child, I mean, wife burning and child beating and uh, abuse of, of wives is endemic. And so how can this culture claim that they've solved the problem of anger? I mean, it's insane. Right. So I think we can put that kind of nonsense aside. And all, all that person is doing is saying, I am not comfortable with anger, and they're acting it out against other people. Uh, it's got nothing to do with you. It's all to do with their own histories and their own messed up avoidances. But it's certainly no virtue to avoid anger. It is, I believe, not right 
to um, you know go go find some kid who bullied you as a kid and go punch him as an adult. I don't I mean I'm not saying that's right, but that's also not what healthy self-expression of anger leads to. That's what repression of anger leads to, and the association of anger with with guilt and immorality and immaturity and all that. That's what leads to the acting out. So I hope that we can at least put that argument aside because that is, in my view, not at all a healthy way to deal with uh, one's feelings. I agree. Now, um, as far as the, I mean, obviously I, I can't give you any advice on what to do with your family situation. I, I never can. But what I, what I can say is I think that it's really, really important to understand that your relationship with your family is going to come out of your relationship with yourself. The practical consequences of how you're going to deal with your family situation, I think, comes out of a clarity of self-knowledge. And obviously, you're torn, right? I mean, you have problems with your dad, but you're taking money from your dad. Now, that may seem like a contradictory situation, but it also may not be that contradictory deep down, if that makes any sense. I think what I find most confusing about it is the the framing of the moral um the framing of the moral uh, viewpoint on it, if that makes sense, whether I'm uh, doing it out of fraud and spite and petty revenge, or if it's... Sorry, doing what? It, taking the money, you mean? Taking the money, yeah. But I'm, you, I don't think that your anger at your father is unrelated to you taking money from your father. Oh, no, it's not. Yeah. Right. And what I mean by that is you could be the most angry at your father for raising you to be such a human being that you ended up taking money from your father. Oh, huh. To, to leave you so unprepared, so non-independent, so unready for an adult life of self-sustained <laughs> independence that taking the money and being angry at your dad for ending up as a human being who takes money from his father and is dependent upon his father beyond what I think most people would be considered uh, ideal. I think those two things uh, are not oppositional. I think fundamentally they're, they're the same because it's – you don't want to be taking money from your dad. It's humiliating. Uh, right. It's frustrating. Right. Uh, but uh, fundamentally, um, I think you have every right to be angry at your father because you've ended up in this position. And it's only right. processing that anger and refusing. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. One sec. Uh, you have to refuse to think that there's some contradiction because what happens then is we go round and round in our head. And we don't actually end up with any clear path of action because you say, well, I want to be independent. I'm mad at my dad. Well, but I'm taking money from my dad. and Therefore, I can't really be that mad at him. And if I express any anger at him, then I'll lose the money. But I don't want the money. But at the same time, I don't have all – like it just goes round and round, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's what it's designed to do. And I'm not saying designed consciously or anything like that. But when you can get people – I mean you understand that this is what the government does. It's not different. Right. Which it's is – uh, people say, well, but the government builds the roads and the government educates the children and the government takes care of the poor. But at the same time, I hate paying my taxes, but so I feel guilty about it. But at the same time, I don't feel like an adult because I have to – I'm forced to do all these things. But the government uh, helps out people in Haiti and – right? People just go round and round and round. It's, it's a tiny little revolving door that people's mental processes get stuck in. And I know because not only did it happen, but it continues to happen to me on a regular basis. And whenever you get stuck in that little mental loop, um, you know, as Rand used to say, check your premises. What is the fundamental premise that is incorrect that's putting you in this tiny loop? So what did your dad or your parents or your caregivers or your teachers, what did they do or not do that ended up with you in the situation where you are in your life? 
Well, that's that's a complicated question. Um, I, I mean, uh, well, my my mom was. Uh, man, how, how do how should I answer that? I mean, they abused the shit out of me. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh. Well, I know that the uh, impulse is to laugh, but I mean, I'm I'm very very sorry. Right. And uh, how old are you? I- I'm 23. Right. So I mean, look, you you're young. You've got time, right? You're not 43 or 33. You you have <laughs> yeah. time. You have time. But this is this is what I would do. Uh, this is my suggestion. Uh, this is what I would do in your shoes, right? You can take it or leave it, of course, as you see fit. But this is my, my suggestion. Forget about the practicalities of the decision-making, right? Continue to take the money, but focus on your feelings. Focus on your feelings. Focus on improving your relationship with yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and give yourself the freedom to feel and express whatever, quote, negative emotion you're experiencing, anger, hatred, jealousy, rage. Um, even self-attack, you, you sort of ride it out. Because the decision around what is going to happen, unless you're facing something totally imminent, the decision is going to come out of, as I said at the beginning, a better relationship with yourself. So I would not worry about taking the money. Uh, I would not worry about the practical concerns about next month or the month after or the month after that. I would simply focus on journaling, do any therapy you can get a hold of, read books, uh, talk to people who are psychologically aware or, or have some some perception or perceptive knowledge of themselves or of others and uh, just really work on improving your relationship with yourself. Don't get distracted by the small decisions or even not so small decisions of the everyday because the right decisions in life, in my experience and opinion, the right decisions in life come out of a great relationship with yourself or at least a better relationship with yourself. They don't come out of going around that tiny little revolving door of yes, but, yes, but, well, this, yes, but, yes, but. That, that never is going to lead you to a good decision, and I think that's part of your frustration. What is going to lead you to a good decision is becoming really centered and rooted and aware of what it is that you think and feel without censorship, without acting out, but without self-censorship. Mm-hmm. And if you take but- that road, then you really do, uh, I think, end up knowing how to move forward in the best way because you don't want to move forward prematurely and then say, well, I'm going to do X. You know, I'm going to stop taking money and move out. And if you're not ready emotionally, if you haven't processed stuff emotionally, the likelihood, in my opinion, is that you're just going to fail. And that's going to be even more frustrating. It's going to add more weight to your parents' evidence that you can't make it without them and so on, right? You just want to go in, go deep, go self-knowledge, go self-expression, go no self-censorship, self-knowledge, self-understanding. Out of that process comes the best decisions which are going to be sustainable. And you were, uh, you're right about that. I've actually, yeah, it's a, it's a pattern I've been in for a long time. So I, I've moved out and moved back and moved out and moved back. Uh, I mean, I think that's the whole, when I, when I listen to your podcast, I mean, I've been around here on FDR for about a year now listening Nonstop, and when I listen to things about the state, and when I listen to things about religion and everything like that, I understand the whole point is that it's it's all 
internal emotional suppression, right? That's the entire state is the uh, crappy authoritarian way we treat ourselves through suppression and repression and uh, all that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I appreciate that. I understand the thesis, but it's also important to remember that a year is not very long in terms of changing yourself, changing your life. A year is kind of like a drop in the bucket. Yeah, yeah, it took you 25 or something. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I hope that it's possible <laughs> for other people now with these resources that are available, but it's uh, it's not long, right? I hope that you're not oh, I've been doing this for a year. How come I'm not X, Y, and Z, right? Um, it, it's not it's not that long, when it, but, but I think that you could probably hit the gas more in terms of forgetting about the day-to-day decisions and focusing on the inward journey. Right. I mean, it's weird. It's like we've got a chasm to cross. And what we want to do is just take a big running jump. We just oh, jump across that chasm. But the weird thing that seems to me very true is that you have to burrow under it. <laughs> I mean, that's the only way that I've been. When you, when you try, you just fall like, like Nero, right? Trying to, in the matrix, trying to jump across that chasm. You just fall. But if you, if you go deep, if you burrow, then you actually, you bypass the canyon completely and you, you, you come to a very different place. But if you keep trying to jump that canyon and you keep falling, then my suggestion is it's really important to take a different approach and get out of that little revolving door of yes, but this and yes, but that, and yes, but this and yes, but that. All that represents to me, when, I, when this happens to me, and it happens to me sadly quite consistently because that's what I mean to say, the year is not that long. Ugh, yeah. But uh, it does, it does, but there's a way out, all right? And the way out is to say, if I'm stuck in this loop, it is in order to avoid a more fundamental question, a more fundamental issue. And so you just say, okay, well, if I don't, let myself go down this this road of, of getting into this tiny little revolving door, what happens? And then feelings uh, comes up, usually anxieties or, or sometimes sadness uh, comes up, which is the real issue. That that sort of surface Hamlet yes but stuff is kind of designed to help keep us helicoptered above rather than, than going into. And uh, so that, that would be my suggestion uh, because it's quite stressful, right? This revolving door is, is quite stressful and it does keep you, I would say, uh, detached from your own deepest experiences. Yeah, definitely. Because fundamentally, it's not about it's not about your parents. It's not about the money. It's not about the future. It's not about the state or God or teachers or priests or, or any of those sorts of things. Fundamentally, it's about yourself, your relationship with yourself. Everything flows out of that, right? All the, the ecosystem conversations and, and uh, negotiations and acceptances. Life moves forward when, when, we go, when we go inward. The only engine that we have is deep within ourselves. There's no, there's no paddling. I mean, we can paddle, I guess, but you get about as far as if you're paddling from the middle of the ocean. You just don't get very far. But there's a motorboat that's in, inside us, right? But, but you really have to, I think, go inwards to get a hold of that motive power. I, I I try that off and on, and I, I don't know. I get I get really stuck in it. I get really stuck in the revolving door of looking at external without recognizing that it's all about because I'm not well aligned with myself. I don't. I can't move forward. You know. 
Sure, absolutely. It's what uh, Gabor Mate was saying that you know he thinks about the need to meditate every day, right? <laughs> meditate. We all we all do that. I mean, I've had issues that I've had for twenty or thirty years that I finally sit down to figure out one day. I spend an hour or two sitting in, in a in a dark room just thinking, and it's like, damn, I should have done this years ago. What the hell matter with me? You know, but. You know, we have to live as well as introspect. So I hope that you'll be patient with that uh, back and forth. Yeah, I hope so too. <laughs> uh, I, it's it's just a matter if it knocks me unconscious, and I, I it's really hard to regain that. <laughs> to, like, wait, wait. It is. It is. I I completely agree with you. It is really, really hard to to regain that. Um, it is um, it is a very complex skill to to remain self aware, and everybody who does it regularly tells you that it's it's on and it's on again and off again. And it's as you practice, it gets more on than off, or at least you begin to notice when you're off, right? Because that's the challenge: is when we're unconscious, we don't know that when we're really unconscious, we don't even know that we're really. I mean, that's the challenge, right? Right. Um, like, but but eventually, like we don't even notice when we're drunk. That's sort of the unconscious thing. But eventually you will notice when you're drunk and then you'll notice, oh, I took those drinks. And then you'll notice, oh, I took those drinks under these circumstances. And then you'll say, oh, these circumstances are coming up. I better not take these drinks, right? I mean, it, it just is a matter of practice. And like any skill, uh, I mean, self-knowledge is concert piano, right? It takes a long time and it takes dedication and it takes focus. The payoff, I think, is enormous and incredibly valuable, not just for yourself, but for your kids, for your future wife, for the future of the world. But you would never expect to be a concert pianist in a, in a year, right? And you would know that you would have to practice. But I'm so smart. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, know. I know. I know. It's like, oh, I have absorbed the principles. Therefore, I understand, right? I mean, I read The Fountainhead when I was 16. It took me 20 years to actually start living it. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, how much we can absorb intellectually before we start living <sighs> spiritually or emotionally. It is. It is. And it doesn't really matter. In fact, the more smart you are, <laughs> the easier it is to convince yourself that you understand something because you've read it and you can repeat it and you can instruct other people on it, right? Right, right. I mean, and that's the, the, you, you, but you you have to do, you have to do, you have to do. And um, if you had been practicing indifferently for a year, you wouldn't say, "Well, how come I'm not I'm not playing Carnegie Hall?" Right? Right, right. There's that old joke, you know. Some guy goes to a New Yorker and says. Uh, can you tell me how to get to Carnegie Hall? And the New Yorker says, practice, practice, practice. <laughs> and what we do as philosophers so often is we say, well, here are the directions to Carnegie Hall, right? Mm. Because we think people are saying, how do you get there? I'll go north here, go left here, two blocks here, and then whatever, right? But the reality is it is. How do you get to self-knowledge? How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. And we think that we look at Google Maps, we say, well, I know how to get there, and therefore... I can do it, but that's not how it works in reality, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, whatever. Damn reality. <laughs> whatever. You know, people are saying, damn, I wish there was a red pill. That would be so much easier, right? Oh, yeah. There is no pill. What about oxytocin? <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, that's true. That's true. And then, then what happens is Carnegie Hall, an imaginary Carnegie Hall, arises around you and you think you're playing, but you're not really. Mm -hmm. Point. And I, look, I'm sorry that there's no better answer. There really isn't. Uh, other than to say, don't, don't sweat. Don't sweat the everyday decisions. Philosophy can't help you with that. 
you know, philosophy can't say, take the money, don't take the money, do this, do that, because it's, it is around self-knowledge. And even if philosophy could tell you that, if you don't really get why it all is, then it won't matter if you make a decision. Like you could say, well, um, I'm 23. I, you know, my father shouldn't be paying me for this. It, it is a kind of exploitation on my part. And if I find exploitation wrong, I should stop and this and that. And then you'll will yourself to stop taking money. <laughs> but that's just dealing with the symptom, not the cause, right? Right. Because that's just the use of force anyways. I mean, Yeah, it's like someone's got weak bones on their legs and you give them a brace and a crutch. Well, can they get around? Sure. But not only is it not solving the problem, it's actually making the underlying problem worse. Because instead of giving them physiotherapy to strengthen their bones, you're actually taking more weight off their bones, which makes their bones even weaker in the future. Right? Philosophy is not about dealing with symptoms. Philosophy is about first causes. And we know this because philosophy doesn't sort of say, like the Ten Commandments, do this, do that. Philosophy says reason from first principles with reference to empirical evidence. UPP is not a list of instructions, but a methodology so, for evaluating propositions, right? Right. Science is not a conclusion, but a process. And as a process, it relies on first principles. And so the same thing is true when it comes to making wise and sustainable decisions in our life. It has to do with a deep self-knowledge and not a surface manipulation of effect, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So, yeah, to go forward, go inward, to make better decisions or to make decisions that are sustainable, self-knowledge and self-expression is the key. And and talking to your parents, of course, right? I mean, to talk openly and honestly about, with your parents. Because through that process, you'll get closure one way or the other, right? Either you'll break through uh, and there will be a possibility of a different relationship uh, or... As, as empirically more likely they're not absolute you uh, will get tired of beating your head against the wall and then your decision will become clear it's it's crazy with my dad I mean he's I, I don't even I don't talk to my mom crazy narcissist right uh, but my dad has the whole co-narcissism thing where he's just kind of a uh, enabler in that sense but he's he's read everyday anarchy. He's read practical anarchy. He watched he watched the procrastination video, but then he doesn't even comment on the entire thesis that procrastination comes because your parents treat you like a slave. Didn't even comment on that. So um, uh, I'm at this. He's, well, I'm at sorry. this point. He actually did comment on it. Oh yeah. Uh, All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I that's that's what I I don't know how to articulate properly is I'm, I'm trying to avoid that reality over and over again. And I don't exact, like, I don't know how to articulate why, like the, the myth of the good parent is, is stuck. Like, Oh, he was, it, does that oh, make but, sense? But like, it's so, so important to differentiate your perspective from his perspective, right? So he would have a very strong incentive for you not to objectively evaluate his parenting, Right. Right. And you have a very strong objective to evaluate his parenting. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's, it's the dad in your head who is, my guess would be, it's the dad in your head who is moving strongly to intervene to prevent you from examining his actions as a parent. Right? Right. Right? So it's, it's so important to figure out what are your feelings and what are his feelings, right? And not to confuse his feelings for your feelings. Right? So when you start to have a strong feeling... Uh, about your father, um, let's just say a negative judgment, a negative feeling about your father, 
then your inner dad intervenes because that's what happened in the real world and says, no, 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 you've got it wrong. Right? <laughs> Anger is immature. Yeah. yeah. Anger is in or whatever. Right. <laughs> right. And uh, that's what I mean. And, and again, Dr. Gabor Mate spoke about this very well. We don't have toxic relationships with others. Fundamentally, we have a toxic relationship with ourselves. Right. So it's not your outer dad that you need to really deal with. It's your inner dad. Now, I don't think the two have to go like you have to have completely separate parts to dealing with these things. I think that the two are very important to work on together. But um, it's the old thing, right? Like if, if, uh, if you're a, a shopkeeper and someone gives you a bill and you have a counterfeit detection machine, the guy who's giving you the counterfeit bill really, really, really doesn't want you to hold that bill up to your detection machine, right? Right. He'll like distract you. He'll he'll laugh. He'll junk. He'll say, "Oh, you know, I'm so offended. I can't believe and and it's no need to and don't worry about it. And this bill is good. I just had it checked yesterday." He will do any. He will experience extreme anxiety when you start to move that bill towards the detection machine, right? Yeah. And if the shopkeeper says, "I am internally torn. Part of me <laughs> wants to <laughs> put the bill up to the detection machine, and part of me really doesn't want to. I'm so conflicted." If he mistakes the, the counterfeiter's emotion for his own feeling, he's going to feel conflicted. But he's not fundamentally conflicted. He's just absorbed the other person's horror at the exposure. And because he owns that as himself, he says, oh my God, I'm so contradicted, right? Yeah, yeah. It'd be, to take another silly example, right? I mean, but it's really important. If I'm trying to walk forward and someone has tied a rope around my waist that prevents me from tied it to a big honking log and I just can't move forward, right? Am I going to say, I'm really conflicted. Part of me wants to go forward <laughs> and part of me wants to stay right here. No, I just got tied to a log, right? Yeah. I'm not conflicted, right? Yeah. I'm just restrained. Right? Like the criminal yeah. in the jail doesn't say, well, part of me wants to walk to freedom, but part of me really wants to stay in this jail cell. I'm conflicted, right? Yeah. He's like, I really want to walk to freedom, but I'm prevented by this jail cell, which someone locked me in. But he's not, he's not conflicted. He's thwarted. He's restrained. He's encased. He's incarcerated, but he's not conflicted. Right, so you're taking the bill called parents and you're holding it up, the, the currency called parents, and you're holding up to the counterfeit detection machine, which of course is philosophy, and your parents really don't want you to. But don't internalize that conflict. They don't want you to, and you want to. You're not conflicted. You're just opposed. And of course, we internalize you know, what our caregivers want. That's how we survive, particularly right. in abusive situations such as what you're talking about. We internalize what our parents want just as we internalize what our teachers want because the, right, that's what we're trying to do biologically, uh, evolutionarily. That's, that's what we have to do to survive, right? Yeah. But we are not conflicted. We're just afraid of retaliation. We just empathize with those who may not have empathized with us, right? Which is survival and it's healthy and it's natural, but you don't, uh, it's important to be clear about that, to not internalize the oppositional messages we grew up with as our own. 
Yeah, it's Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Does that does that help at all? Like the conflict, uh, it, that's where we go round and round. All we're doing is having an internal debate with our inner shopkeeper and our inter, inner counterfeiter, right? Yeah. But the shopkeeper's self-interest is clear. Don't take fake currency. And the counterfeiter's self-interest is clear. Don't get my money put on that detection machine. Right? Right. But each individual is not conflicted. And you, as the child of, as you describe, abusive parents, are not conflicted. Get the truth, right? Get the truth. Get the truth. That's what you need. You need the truth. Your parents don't want you to go for the truth, right? But you, and you've internalized that, and it feels like part of yourself, but fundamentally it's not, because it's, it's counter to your self-interest as a human being to live in evasion and lies and immorality and a history of abuse that is unresolved, right? Right. So your self-interest is to get to the truth, to keep asking questions, to keep being vulnerable, to keep opening your heart until you get resolution one way or the other. That's your self-interest, right? Just take the money and put it in front of the counterfeit detection machine. Their self-interest is to avoid you doing that, which is pretty telling, right? <laughs> yeah. But you're not conflicted, right? You're just inhabited, right? You're just yeah. Right? And and I wonder if that's the inability to process the humili sort of humiliation of that. Like they got me so bad that I can't even tell myself from them. And well, no, I don't. Yeah, maybe, maybe, but I think it's just an adaptive survival mechanism. Right. But again, I wouldn't even assume the humiliation is yours. Ah. Huh. Right. Because if if you expose the counterfeit detection, if you expose the counterfeiter, yeah. who is humiliated? Oh, yeah, because it wouldn't even, yeah, it wouldn't be mine. It would be... You, were you in the call last night? Do you remember? I think you were. Oh, I, I wasn't. I wanted to get in. I'm sorry. Uh, I think I saw you just, just near the end. But uh, anyway, yeah. when it gets released, it's called Rear View Canoe. I listen to Convo. When it gets released, we talk about this. So I won't go into it in more detail here. I'm sure it will be released. Uh, and if, it, if it's not released, at I'll at least ask the woman if you can have a listen to this, this Convo. But uh, I would not even assume that the humiliation is yours. Because the humiliation now is going to accrue to your parents, if your theories uh, uh, and your understanding of your history is correct. Right, that wouldn't make any sense. Uh, no, why would you be humiliated? A, you were a victim, and B, you're acting honorably now by trying to get to the truth. So you're not going to be humiliated, but they will be. Does that, uh, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes sense. Just focus on the emotionals, the emotional aspects that that are entirely to your self-interest. I believe those are your organic feelings, and everything else is an inhabitation, a possession, an infliction, a scar tissue, which is not to say just reject it and abandon it because it has kind of become part of your experience. But don't assume that it's organic to you. Right. That's going to be hard. <laughs> it is hard. It is hard. Uh, and that's, that's the challenge, right? But, but it's impossible unless you get the rational clarity on the situation. It, like it's moved from impossible to hard, which I think is a huge step forward. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very sensitive of your time, so... 
I think you've given me uh, what I need, right? Uh, I certainly will, and uh, I will send you a copy of this. I certainly think uh, you're not, I promise you, you're not alone uh, in, in dealing with this. So maybe you'll see fit to, uh, we haven't used any names or anything, you'll see fit to have other people listen, but have a listen first and let me know what you think. Um, can I throw something in real quick? Did sure. you um, did you catch in the chat last night, I put a link in. Um, there's a psychologist named Scott D. Miller who did a meta-analysis of like 40 years of psychological studies. And he, it's basically about how therapy works and what, what actually works in it. And he if found you can that send me an email, I would love to chat with him. Sure, sure. Can do. I really appreciate that. Uh, and uh, it sounds, sounds very interesting. All right, well, thank you very much, Steph. You're very welcome, man. Take care. Take care. Bye.